0: Okay, first things first, I want everybody to think of one thing that you must have faith about, like you personally, something that in your life you have to trust God with. I don't mean like a generic, like, with my salvation, like I don't want any Sunday school answers, and obviously we all know we need to trust God with everything, but some things we feel more like we have to trust god with like relational issues, physical ailments, new projects at work, whatever. There's all kinds of things like that. And I just want you to think of what's one in your life, one one place where you need faith. Children? Disciplining children, yes. <laughs> that is one where I need faith. That is one where we need faith. There's, there's all kinds of things. I mean, we could, we, could, we could sit here and name them. But just think, think, of, think of one that is for you. And if you have got it, then just hold that in your mind, and, and we'll come back to that, okay? So I grew up in the days of testosterone-fueled action movies, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Uh, Sylvester Stallone, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, do these names ring any bells or am I just an old person? I grew up going to Blockbuster Video and getting as many of these kinds of movies as I could possibly get, which you could argue whether that was a good thing or not, but the fact is I did. I loved movies with explosions and guns and guns and all kinds of stuff like that, right? And in a lot of those movies from my childhood, there's a scene that I love, and it's the scene where, let's say, the terrorists have kidnapped the president's daughter or whatever. There's some problem. Oh, no, the Taliban has uranium, or there's a nuke aimed at Manhattan or something. And and the only person that can deal with the problem is the character played by, let's say, Chuck Norris. And there's usually some grizzled old guy that he used to be like Chuck Norris's mentor or whatever. Maybe he's an army general or something. And he's like, the only man that can save the president's daughter is Chuck Norris. We've got to call him out of retirement or break him out of prison or whatever, you know, get the movie going. And the scene that I love is the scene that always happens next, where the movie makers want to tell you how awesome Chuck Norris's character is. And so there'll be some dork who's never heard of Chuck Norris's character, and he'll look at the grizzled old army general and be like, well, uh, what? Why? You, you, who's this Chuck Norris fellow that you want to save the president's daughter? And then the general will get sort of angry and stern, and he'll look at that guy, and he'll be like, I'll tell you who Chuck Norris is. And then he'll go through a list of all of Chuck Norris' characters, at, you know, he'll say, he won 14 Purple Hearts. He's been on so many missions that are so secret that Black Ops doesn't even know what these missions are. He's got 400 confirmed kills. He can speak every language. He can appear and disappear at will. He'll go on and on and on like that and basically tell you as an audience member, well, this is, this is who Chuck Norris's character is. And then he'll, he'll end with something like, and he is the only hope the president's daughter has. And the dorky guy that didn't know who Chuck Chuck Norris is will be like, ah, yes sir, yes, okay, let's get him. That's one kind of hero, right? That's the kind of hero that I grew up with, like the uber-competent guy who has all the skills. You could not imagine anyone else even being capable of doing this mission. It's gotta be this guy, because he is everything. He's smooth with the ladies. You know Anything you can imagine you'd want with a hero, it's him. But there is another kind of adventure hero in your movies and your novels and things like that who stands out if you compare him to the hero that I just described. And that would be someone, like, just to take a few examples that we're probably all pretty familiar with. It'd be like Luke Skywalker from the fir- from the original Star Wars movie, or Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, or Frodo from Lord of the Rings. These are heroes who are nobody They don't have a big list of skills, of attributes. They're not like, well, if there's one person that's going to take the ring to Mordor, then it better be Frodo, because he's so great, he has 400 confirmed kills, he's been on Black Ops. No. He's just a guy. He's just some dude. Luke Skywalker is just a farm boy, Dorothy in Wizard of Oz is just a farm girl. The only thing that makes them special is that when they are called into an adventure, they accept the call. Right? That's why we like a hero like that, is because they're nobody. They're just like us. They don't have any special skills. And yet, when someone needs to step up, they do it. And I think that is a very good way to think about the hero in the faith that we are going to talk about today. We're continuing in our Faith of Our Fathers series. We started with Adam and the creation of the world and sin coming into the world. Uh, Pastor Ben talked to us about Noah and the flood last week. And today we're going to talk about Abraham. Now, what do you know about Abraham? If I say Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Now, are you one of them? Am I one of them? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm. Here's the thing to understand about Abraham. As we, Abraham. He's called. You'll, some of the verses I'll read, he's called Abram. We think of him as Abraham. God eventually changed his name to Abraham. We don't have a lot of time to spend on that today, but don't get confused by that. He goes by both names. But Abraham, when God called him, he was not a Rambo or Terminator of the faith, right? He was just a guy. He was nobody. We could actually, so Noah, the flood, that story. Noah has three sons. One of those sons is Shem. And then in Genesis 11, we trace from Shem, To Abraham, Uh, Genesis 11, verse 10 says, this is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad, and after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And then we go through, as the Bible often does, a long lineage, this guy begat this guy, begat this guy, begat this guy, begat this guy. Finally, we come to verse 26, after Terah, so we've gotten to Terah in the line of Shem. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram. That's, that's going to be Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham, or Abram, and Nahor both married. The name of Era's wife was Sarai, later known as... Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So this is what we know about Abraham when the story begins. He's some guy. He's some dude. He lives with his dad. His dad, at a certain point, sets out for Canaan, which will become what we think of as the promised land. But his dad isn't really probably thinking of it that way. And his dad never makes it. He settles halfway there or something. And so does Abram. And we don't know that Abram had any bigger plans for his life. But then one day, as we'll talk about, God spoke to Abraham. And Abraham would become one of the most important fathers in the faith, one of the most important heroes of the Bible ever to live. Pastor Jacobs talks a lot about him because in Romans 4, it, it calls him the father of all who believe. So he's the father of you, of me. If you're a Christian, if you're here today, Abraham is our father. He's a really important guy, right? And why is that? That is because when God calls Abraham, Abraham believes him, and God makes Abraham, as we'll see, the father of a great nation, of many nations, actually, but primarily of the nation of Israel here on earth, but also the church, God's people everyone who has faith. And God makes Abraham the one through whom eventually Christ will come through his lineage. And there is so much that we could talk about today. There are many, many fascinating episodes in Abraham's life, Sodom and Gomorrah, the the two separate times where Abraham tries to pass off his wife as his sister so that various kings that he's living near won't be attracted to her, or if they are, they, they won't make trouble for him. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but we're going to just very briefly sketch his life, and I want to make sure that we get the big lessons that God has for us from the life of Abraham, from his faith. Abraham's life begins, as I will keep stressing, with him being nobody in particular important. But then God calls him, and this happens in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, and we don't, the Bible doesn't record for us how the Lord said to Abram, whether it was a messenger or a vision or a dream or just a voice, we don't know. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you In him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So once again, I'm going to keep saying it, Abraham's just a guy, just some random guy. But then God singles him out, gives him a mission, tells him basically three things. First, God commands him to leave his family, to leave his country, to leave his father's house, to go to a different land— which I want to, we have to move quickly, but I want to stop here again because it's easy to just read the Bible as kind of a, I don't know, pageantry. It's kind of like Charlton Heston movie or something where somebody says a great thing and then someone else says a great thing and then someone goes and does a great thing and you kind of just take it for granted. But imagine if God told you to just pick up leave everything you've ever known, leave your family. I mean, imagine if, if I came up to you today and said, you know what? I need you to drop everything. I need you to leave your parents behind, whatever. I need you to go to China. I need you to never come back, and you will be greatly blessed. Would you believe me? No? Okay. Well, yeah, my point. Exactly. Jake, at a certain point, Pitched the, we, we all lived in Bloomington and Jake pitched the idea of coming back to his hometown, Evansville, to me, to Ben, you know, to, to plant a church. And when he did that, I'd worked with Jake for a long time, and I knew his life, I knew a lot, you know I, I knew about Evansville. He took me to Evansville. He had a vision for why this would be a good time and place to plant a church and all this stuff. But, but what if I didn't know Jake that well? What if Jake had just walked up to me and said, hey, you needed to drop everything, leave your family behind, go to Evansville, and you'll be greatly blessed. It's gonna be great. And that's all I got for you. What would I have said? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. Now, Jake's not God, and I'm not Abraham. So it's a little bit different, right? But imagine giving, being given this mission. So God commands Abraham to leave everything, to go to this promised land. God, secondly, promises to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him, to make his name renowned. And once again, that's, that's crazy in an earthly sense. Like, what if Jacob said, Nathan, we're gonna go to Evansville, and I guarantee you everyone in Evansville will love us. And we'll be really successful. I guarantee that's what's gonna happen. What would I have said? I mean, I would have said Am I on candid camera? You know, do you wanna sell me some Tupperware too? You can't make a promise like that. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know all the factors. Of course. God does know all the factors. God can make a promise like that. But again, just put yourself in Abraham's shoes and realize the kind of faith that this takes. Uh, Number three, Abraham is told that through him, all the families on earth will be blessed. Verse three, and then you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, What if Jacob said to me, come to Evansville, everyone in Evansville is going to love us, we're going to be super successful, and the entire world will be saved. Would I have believed him? No, I would have said, you know, are you getting the check? Am I getting the check? Can we be done here? But Abraham believes God. He believes God. I think we can see something about his character in that. We can see something about the fact that he wasn't just nobody. He was somebody that was going to believe and obey. But still, God was the one that empowered him to be that. And God did not provide everything up front. You know, here's the army that you're going to conquer Canaan with. Here's the son that you're going to have this great nation through. No, Abraham had to believe for all that stuff. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departs for Haran along with his nephew Lot, his wife Sarai, later called Sarah. I know a gentleman doesn't ask and a lady doesn't tell, but I wonder who the oldest person, is anyone here over 65? Oh, yeah, my mom. Is anyone here over 75? You don't have to raise your hands. Um, Imagine, now people lived longer, okay, I get that, but imagine being 75, imagine having lived that long, having done that much. For, for most of us, for all of us, you know, that's when our life is winding down, that's when we're looking to the end. But Abraham, his life is beginning, his mission is starting. So he, his nephew Lot, his wife Sarah, they go to this land of Canaan, which is occupied by all these pagan nations. Lot and Abraham, they both have their flocks and their herds. They're kind of, you know, nomadic tribesmen types. And their herdsmen are not getting along when they try to both occupy the land at the same time. And so they have to separate. And Abraham's like, well, where do you want to go, Lot? And Lot sees, like, the good stuff. And he's like, well, I'll go over there to all the the green pastures over there. And Abraham goes the other direction. And then in in, in Genesis 13, uh, starting in verse 14, God speaks to Abram at the time. Again, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So again, Jake took me to Evansville several times to show me around, like this is where I want to move. What if he had driven me down Green River and then driven me up the Lloyd and said, and we will own all of this eventually. It'd be crazy, but God... Tells Abraham, just look around at all these all this land owned by all these different nations, all these different people groups. And he says, that's all gonna be you. Now, as I say, there are so many episodes and interesting things we could talk about in Abraham's life, but I want to actually move through the rest of it very quickly because what happens next? Big picture. Well, God doesn't immediately fulfill those promises. Abraham does not immediately have millions of descendants as much as the dust of the earth or whatever, occupying this land. In fact, he doesn't immediately have an heir. You probably noticed his wife was barren. She cannot have children, and she's past the age where she could, even if she could have. Abraham is a sinner. He's not some guy that's just perfect. He's not, there's only one man that's ever lived that's been perfect, Jesus Christ. He's a sinner, One of the wonderful things about reading these stories from the Old Testament is that you see that these people are sinners, just like you, just like me. And so it gives you a little hope because if Abraham's faith was just perfect, then it's like, well, okay, I know I can't do that. At least that's how I would think about it. But but Abraham is a sinner. And there's a couple different sins that are recorded for us. But the main one is that he tries to rush God's promise. He tries to get ahead of it. It's not coming quickly enough. It looks like it's not going to come at all. He does not have an heir. How is he supposed to be this great nation? And so he tries to, he tries to get ahead of things. And how does he do that? Does anybody know? Yes, yes. Sarah, his wife, says, hey, I'm not going to be able to give you an heir, so why don't you take my wife or, or my maidservant, Hagar, and you go into her, and she will provide you with an heir. And Abraham listens, he does it, he has a son and that son's name is Ishmael, yeah. Now I don't, even though we're moving quickly, I do not want us to miss the lessons in this. Have you ever tried to rush God's promises in your life? Like you know God is going to do something for you or give something to you. You know he has things that he's promised you but you want it now. I do that. I think an example of a place where I do that or where I've done that is with sanctification, you know, with God changing my heart, making me a better man. I'm eager to be really better, r- really right now. Like, this is a fake example. This is not an example for my life, but it would be like this. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm like, well, God has saved me from being an alcoholic. I, I know I'm no longer an alcoholic. So I'm going to go to the bar tonight because I know I can just have one because God has promised to do work in my life. And I was like, well, yeah, God has promised to do work in your life, but has he promised to do it that fast in exactly the way that you want him to? Has he promised? Another one that people run into is, I've been working on my sins, working on myself, I've got my act together, I'm ready to be married. Where's my spouse? Where's the woman for me? Where's the man for me? I'm ready for God to, to give me that. We have things that we have the fruit of bad things in our lives that we want God to take away very quickly. Well, I repented of that, so I shouldn't have to bear those consequences anymore. Or we repent or do something good, and we want the good fruit. Well, I started to manage my budget, so now I should have lots of money. And it's like, that's not, just, that's not, that's not how it works. God goes slower than we would sometimes, and he, he does that to build our faith and to build our trust and to build our patience, and these are, that's a good thing. So anyway, Abraham is not patient. He tries to jump the gun. And he has this son, Ishmael. And God is faithful even there. God actually does make a great nation out of Ishmael. Ishmael becomes basically the father of the Arab peoples. So God makes a great nation out of Ishmael. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of strife, and it doesn't really work very well. And Hagar and Ishmael have to leave Um, And there's a lot of family drama, and I encourage you to read it. This is all in Genesis 12 to about 25. You can read the whole story of Abraham. We could really do a whole sermon series on just this. But that, even though God is faithful there, that is not actually the way that God wants to fulfill his promise. Ishmael is not the son of the promise. That would be Isaac, yes. Eventually, God opens up, Sarah's womb, and she has a child, a boy named Isaac. And Abraham, finally, is beginning to see this promise that he's been living with, that he's built his entire life on, fulfilled. And then, one of the most famous stories of the Bible, probably you're all familiar with it, if you've been to Sunday school or whatever, um, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Literally, sacrifice him. I want you to get some kindling, go to a certain mountain, climb up that mountain, and kill him. And Abraham obeys. Abraham is willing to sacrifice this son that was, that was promised, this, this miracle child that was promised. He's willing to give him back to God. And he believes, it it tells us in the book of Hebrews, that God can bring him back from the dead. That's how strong his faith is. Well, God promised me this. He's not malicious. He's not just going to snatch it away from me. So I guess the way that's probably going to work is God's going to bring him back from the dead after, after he dies. How does it actually work? It actually works. They get up the mountain. Abraham has the knife out. He's about to stab, like, we're... Seconds away from Isaac being dead, and then an angel of the Lord stays Abram's hand. Uh, Genesis 22, beginning in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven because he did not spare his only son. And of course, this is a shadow, a type of God who did not spare his only son. God builds these kinds of things into the history of the world and the history of the faith of our fathers so that we can see them and take comfort in them. But That, very briefly, is the story of Abraham. After that, Isaac becomes a great patriarch, And then there's Jacob, and then the 12, Jacob's sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we do get a great nation. And, you know, we'll be talking about all that in the the upcoming weeks. But God makes these promises to Abraham because Abraham has faith. Does anybody know what these particular promises are called by theologians? The Abrahamic covenant. Yes, Jeremy knows. So God works through covenants. Pastor Jake talks about this every time that we baptize a baby, and you don't have to baptize your babies. That's totally fine. But God works through covenants, and there are some big covenants that you can understand the whole of the scriptures through. The covenant of works was the covenant with Adam. Hey, you need to obey me and do good and not eat from this tree, and then you won't die and you'll be really blessed. He, of course, breaks that covenant. Death comes into the world. There are many other covenants as God works his will through history. One of them is the Abrahamic covenant, and it basically involves two promises. And those promises are, number one, I mean, we've already talked about them, that Abraham Abraham will be a big nation, that he will be many nations, and that is fulfilled through Israel, the Jews, to this day. The bigger promise is that God promised to bless all people through Abraham. And we've already talked about it, but how is that fulfilled? I need the most Sunday school answer of all time. Jesus, yes, God brought Christ into the world through the line of Abraham. So that's that's the story of Abraham. Very brief. Again, I encourage you, if you have time, Read it. It's a fascinating story. All kinds of things you wouldn't expect. The sins of Abraham, his relationship with his wife, um, his relationship with Lot, the, his nephew, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's just all kinds of rich stuff there. But we only have so much time today. So I want to make sure we take two big lessons today from the story of Abraham. And the, and the lesson number one is the lesson that I've kind of been hitting the whole time, which is you're not chosen because you're special. God chose Abraham because God chose Abraham. That's why. Now, again, I don't want to push that too far. Obviously, Abraham was someone who was willing to be responsive to God's call, and that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, God could have chosen someone else and made them responsive to his call. God chose Abraham. And it wasn't because he was the Rambo of Godly attributes. It wasn't because he was so much less a sinner than anyone else. We see some huge sins that he commits. And we need to learn that lesson because it is very easy for us, it's very easy for me in my pride to think that God chooses me because of something special in me. If you're someone who's made a sacrifice or performed a duty or done something to set yourself apart one way or another, it's easy to think that God chose you because of that, because, because you go to Church of the King, because your church has church discipline, because I don't know what, there's, just, there's, there's all kinds of things that we can cling on to, earthly things that we do. I heard, I heard some families are starting a homeschool co-op, which is great. My view on school stuff is kids are different, and so what's good for one kid might not be what's good for another kid. That's my highly sophisticated view of Education. So I'm not like uh, everybody has to homeschool, everybody has to private school, or everybody has to public school. Like I I don't want to, don't want to start that fight today in the middle of the sermon. But I have been around homeschooling. I was homeschooled for a while, and I have been around homeschooling communities my whole life. And one thing, one sin that attends that particular thing, or other sins that go with public schooling, with private schooling, with other things. But a sin that goes oftentimes, unfortunately, with homeschooling is the very sin we're talking about, you know, the sin of pride, the sin of, well, we're special. We're set apart. We do not go to the pagan, uh, trans public school s- system. We do not give ourselves to that. And of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with raising your kids to be godly. There's nothing wrong with using this method or that method to do it. But oftentimes, there was a pride that went with it, a, a just kind of We're special. We're special. Obviously, God likes us, and that's not true. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you to make your kids turn out a certain way. Of course, he works through means, like if you raise your kids right, chances are they're going to turn out better, right? But God doesn't owe anybody anything. He's always, only, ever choosing you, choosing your children because of his mercy. And it's not just people that have certain virtues who are tempted to think that God favors them. It's also people, and I've been on both sides of this in my life, people who have brokenness, people who have pain, people who come from drugs, from alcohol, from fatherlessness, from motherlessness, from loss, abuse. You can be very tempted to say, that's what makes me special. I get it. I've suffered. I understand life. I I see things like I... I, I don't just, I'm not a cheese ball trite person that's never actually seen how it really is. And so God owes me something special because I've suffered. Because I've had a rough childhood, whatever. There's just, a, whether we're low, whether we're high, whether we're broken, whether we're, we have a lot of virtue, there's so many things that we cling on to to say, well, this is what I can present to God. And the fact is, there's nothing that we can present to God. The only thing we can cling to is Jesus' accomplished work on the cross. And and one reason I think to spend a little time here is because what some people do is they'll think, and I've been guilty, all these things, I'm preaching to myself, so I hope nobody feels beat up at all. What you'll be tempted to do is say, I know I wasn't worthy when God chose me. And when he called me, when I became a Christian, I know I did some bad stuff. But, but now I want to prove that it was a really good idea for him to have chosen me. So I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to read my Bible really well. And I'm going to do all these, like, I, I wasn't the Chuck Norris of Christians before, but I'm going to be now. It's going to be great. And is it good to have virtue? Is it good to work hard on sanctification? Is it good to work hard on repentance? Of course it is. But that's never the thing that we present to God. It's never the price we pay for our salvation. The only price is the work of Jesus, right? So you're not chosen. Abraham wasn't chosen because he was special, and you're not chosen because you're special either. Lesson number two. Faith means walking, sometimes without sight. Abraham left his home at 75. He depended on God to give him a son when he and his wife were both, the scripture says, as good as dead. He was willing to sacrifice that son when God commanded him to do so, to literally sacrifice him. He thought God could bring him back. Uh, So Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8, you know, the faith chapter with all the heroes of the faith, interprets Abraham this way. By faith, From one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And skipping ahead to uh, verse 17 By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So that's Abraham. Now I asked you to think at the beginning of a thing. So what was the thing? Like, what is the journey that God is calling you to right now in your life that you don't know the destination? You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know, maybe you do know the destination, but you don't know how you're going to get there could be finding the future, like what is your career going to be, how is God going to use the gifts that he's given you, trusting God with your finances, trusting God to provide you a husband, a wife, leading your family, loving a difficult spouse, um, giving yourself to your children, raising difficult children, seeing your children grow up, the people that deal with infertility, trusting God for children. A dealing with your past, fighting a particular sin, leaning on God instead of your anger, instead of alcohol, instead of whatever your drug of choice is. Trusting God with your health. Trusting God with, the loss, with loss, with friends and loved ones going through hard things. Trusting the church, trusting that God brought you where you are for a reason. Living with the brokenness of a family, an extended family that may not get better, going deeper into the things of God, going beyond the superficial, I don't know. There's a million things we could say. What is it that God is calling you to have faith in this week, this year, this lifetime? And what is it that God wants you to be willing to put on the altar to honor him? Your money, your marriage, your family, your friends, your food, and what is it that you need to stop trying to control? We spend our lives trying to control for things and thinking we have control. You know, if I just treat my kids different from the way my dad treated me, if I eat these foods, if I don't eat these foods, if I buckle my seatbelt, if I have a home birth, if I have a hospital birth, if I use birth control, if I don't use birth control, all these things we do to try and control our lives. If I read my Bible every day, if I pray the right prayer, now are some of those things wonderful and you should definitely do it? sure. But there's an infinite number of things that we can use to try and control the outcomes of our lives. But the fact is, only God controls those outcomes. Then the last year, I was driving on the Lloyd and I saw a car flip. They just They were doing everything right. They're just driving along and then another car came out of nowhere and that car ended up upside down. I had to slam on my brakes and get out of the car and it was a mess. And there's this upside down car in front of me and there's this trail of glass Thank God everyone was okay. It all turned out okay. But it was a traumatic moment for them, more so than for me, but even for me. And the thing that stuck in my head from that is this trail of glass, and there's all this pizza in the glass. And it's just one of those little objects, lessons in life. Like, And again, everybody was fine. But one minute you're riding along on the Lloyd, eating your Papa John's, and then the next minute your car is upside down and that Papa John's is in the trail of glass leading away from your car, right? I remember when I worked for a call center, I got this ear infection and this ear got clogged up, you know, that like horrible feeling of your ear being all clogged. Um, And it didn't go away for a week or two. And it was like... Not that big of a deal on one level, but on the other hand, I, I, my entire job was in my ears and I was just going crazy. Like I was praying all the time. I couldn't concentrate to read a book or watch a movie or distract myself. Like it was just like, it was really hard and it was really hard that it was something so simple. It was like, oh, that went wrong. Like that simple, It was not some terminal disease or anything, just like an earache, but that has thrown off my entire life. That has uprooted everything. Now, is my point in telling those stories to say, at any point, something horrible could happen. God could snatch it all away. No. No, my point is that sometimes God gives you the gift of realizing how little control you have over your life. Sometimes you go along feeling like you have control, you never do. I mean, you're always only ever taking your next breath because God's decided that's what you're going to do. Sometimes you get a little picture of just how much you don't have control. My point is to say we have to rely on God. He is responsible for our next breath, He is responsible for us not getting in a horrible car accident on the way home. He is responsible for this ceiling not just caving in right now. And He is good and he is generous, and he is kind, and actually, the difference between I'm driving on the Lloyd eating my pizza, and I'm driving on the Lloyd, or I'm, you know, upside down on the Lloyd, and my pizza's in the street, is not that different, because we still have a kind and generous. even when things go wrong in your life, even when the unexpected happens, God is there. He is in control. He is holding you up. He is the king of the universe. He's holding everything together. But we have to have faith. We have to have real faith in God that He will guide us and protect us and love us and take care of us, that He will honor His promises, that He will give us new hearts as we trust in him, that he will deal with our family drama. Whatever it is, we have to trust in him. Abraham left his home when he was 75. He trusted God to give him a son. When he was as good as dead, he trusted God to raise that son from the dead. And it wasn't because Abraham was the superman of faith. It was because he just had simple faith and he clung to God. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what do you need to trust God with this week? What do you need to have faith for? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that we can put our whole trust in you. Thank you that you are kind, that you are a good father, that you uphold us, that you fulfill your promises, that you're not the kind of father who wants to give us a stone when we ask for bread but you delight to give us good things. Thank you for your mercy to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.